You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this Tuesday edition of the Theology Mom podcast. Thank you for joining me for tonight's conversation. And this is part one of a short two-part series that I am doing related to the dignity of the developmentally disabled. And this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart for reasons that will become more apparent probably in part two of this live stream. But uh, you might be asking, why is Krista doing a teaching on this topic? Well, there's a few reasons. Um, One of them is that I know that many people have loved ones who are developmentally disabled. And much of what I'm going to talk about tonight in in this framework, um, it really could be dignity for the disabled, not just the developmentally disabled. But I feel like highlighting the developmentally disabled is important because sometimes they don't have a voice and sometimes they don't have somebody to advocate for them. And I feel like this is a this is an important conversation because many families are affected by disabilities. And there is sometimes, I think, not enough public conversation, especially in Christian contexts, to help families think about this very important issue of within the context of the biblical worldview. And so I want to help fill in that gap just a little bit uh, from a theological perspective. The second reason that I'm covering this topic is because uh, if Christians are going to have a distinctly biblical approach to justice, which I know there's a lot of conversations happening right now uh, about justice, we want to do it in a, a particular Christian way. We don't want to just borrow from the world's uh, secular ideologies of social justice and kind of sprinkle it with a little Jesus and then go on from there. Rather, we want to start with our grounding with scripture and understand how Christ reigns over every area of our lives. Uh, as the great Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper would say, every square inch belongs to God because Jesus is ruling and reigning. And so for that reason, I think we ought to reflect deeply on the principles of scripture and how they shape our lives in all areas, including uh, areas related to the disabled and particularly the developmentally disabled. With all of that said, let's get into this. I've entitled this talk tonight, The Dignity of the Developmentally Disabled. And again, a lot of what I'm going to talk about tonight really could apply to the disabled in general, but I will focus in particular on the developmentally disabled tonight and in part two of this stream. And the reason for this is that my whole heart behind all of this is really unity in the body of Christ, um, because there, th- this is a population that, like I said earlier, does often get overlooked, and they often don't have a voice. And so if we're going to really uh, be a unified body, we want to understand how these parts of our more vulnerable part of the family, um, how we can love them and care for them 
and uh, be a stand and a voice for them. And this is going to increasingly become more and more of an important issue for Christians to have clarity on. Uh, Just one example, the rise of genetic prenatal testing is continuing to uh, become more popular. And it's often done in the name of health and safety. And those are good things. And we want to be circumspect about that. And we're often told that when there's problems, you know, that we have to consider the costs of society and to the family. There's going to be a lot of extra money needed to care for somebody when you, you discover that there's a problem like Down syndrome. And there's a lot of questions that are raised about quality of life issues. And when we think about genetic prenatal testing, um, we don't want to just run into a technology with our eyes not focused on the truth. We, As with any technology, there's a, a good side and a potential dark side. And so we want to utilize a technology uh, from a distinctly Christian worldview. I can use a knife uh, to really harm someone, or I can use a knife if I'm a surgeon to perform a life-saving surgery. A knife is just a tool. A genetic test is just a tool. But the question is, is how do we use it and how do we interact with that technology in a distinctly Christian way? So the place to start the conversation is in Genesis chapter one with these very important verses that are at the base of our worldview in many ways. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. From the beginning, we were created in the image of God. All humans, all humans were created with dignity. This is very important. And the the foundation of the Christian worldview, and I want to draw your attention here to the word, have intrinsic value, dignity and worth. The Christian position, the Judeo-Christian position, is that humans have intrinsic value. That means that they're valuable simply because they are human persons. And to be a human person is to be created in the image of God. Only humans have been created in God's image. This is a distinctive feature of what it means to be a human. So Christians need to display um, that dignity within the church. We need to honor that dignity. We need to recognize that dignity. We need to live from that place as if it's true and to advocate for that dignity in the broader culture. This is a a critical and historic part of our faith. Now, when we think about the big picture of the Bible, there's sort of four major movements of scripture. There's creation, which we just talked about of being created in the image of God, but then something went dreadfully wrong in Genesis chapter three. And that is that human beings Adam and Eve, our first parents, decided that they were going to kind of break away from God's standards, from God's commands, and decide for themselves 
what was good, true, and beautiful by eating of that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so then we awaited, there was this long waiting period of the whole Old Testament where we were waiting for our redemption through Jesus and through his sacrifice. And now we, as God's people, if you, if you have placed your faith, hope, and trust in the work of Jesus on the cross, then we are now children of God and we are waiting for our glorification. These are the four major movements of scripture, creation, fall, redemption, glorification. And we are waiting for Jesus to come again and that great white throne judgments and go to the eternal state in heaven or separation in hell from our creator. So when we think about scripture, we want to think according to this lens and through this, this paradigm, if you will. So when we think about creation, we are created in the image of God. But what happened at the fall? This is a very important question. Are disabilities the result of sin? Um, of the sin, I should say, of sin, not the sin. So there's a little typo there. Sorry about that. Are disabilities the result of sin? Well, this was actually similar to a question that Jesus' disciples asked him in John 9. They asked him, um, they, they saw a blind man uh, who has been blind from birth. The disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's no scriptural foundation to think that disabilities are the result of a sin, either that person's sin or of their parents' sin as some sort of generational thing. Um, we just don't see that in, in, in with a scriptural warrant, um, at least one that I haven't been able to find. Now, um, as part of reflecting of living under the fall, another kind of similar question that comes up is our disabilities the result of the fall? Now, this is a little trickier. So sometimes these things are called natural evil. And we want to distinguish that between, uh, between moral evil and natural evil. Moral evil is evil done by human beings themselves. So that could be weapons of mass destruction. That could be genocide, murder, rape, torture, child abuse. Now, in that sense... There could be some disabilities that could be uh, the result of moral evil. Let's say, for example, um, that a parent abused their child to the point that they, they, the child became disabled. That would be a horrible, horrible scenario. But let's say that that happened. That would be a disability as a result of moral evil. Let's say that somebody became disabled due to neglect. Uh, maybe uh, there was a neglectful, dangerous situation in a workplace where the employer knew there was dangers and then somebody gets injured. You could argue that that's a case of moral evil. But what about natural evil? This is kind of the second um, aspect of evil. If we could go back to the slide for a minute. There we go. Uh, natural evil is evil that generally refers to 
random things. These are things that happen in the natural world as a result of how the world just naturally operates. This could be the result of natural disasters, uh, hurricanes, tsunamis, tornadoes, earthquakes. But it could also be this type of thing could fall um, under the umbrella of natural evil is genetic conditions or human decay and death. And I'm going to put some little question marks under some of those things and help us think through this a little bit more because um, I'm not sure that the term natural evil is always the most helpful. Um, This is a, this definition that I gave you is a very typical definition that you'll find in, in um, on the internet and in, in philosophy and theology textbooks. But I kind of take some issue with this definition because I'm not sure that it's always useful. So I'm going to go to another slide here, breaking down natural evil a little bit more. Now, I would say that there's some things in our world that are just physics, things like hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, that sort of thing. Those things actually serve a useful purpose. Uh, They help to regulate the temperature of our planet. If we didn't have those things, Um, We would have runaway temperatures on our planet and our planet would very quickly not support advanced life. So I'm not totally prepared to call those things evil, to put them under um, that umbrella. Now, are they natural? Are they part of the natural physical world? Yes. And I would say, I think that God set it up that way. Now, um, random accidents. If uh, we have an accident at the house where my three-year-old crawls up on top of the counter and then falls, well, that's gravity. If they get hurt, that's gravity. I don't know if that's evil. Now, the suffering that comes about as a result of that, we could have that conversation. But um, some things I think we have to be a little bit more circumspect about, about whether or not it's actually truly evil. Now, genetic defects. These, some genetic defects are re- are the result of mutations. They can be sort of random. And, um, you know, we could have a conversation as to whether or not those things are in and of themselves evil or whether the suffering that is generated as a result of them is evil. So that's a good question to probe. And decay and death. Now, decay is part of star formation. You can't get stars uh, without decay, without the second law of thermodynamics. So um, I take the position that I think that the laws of physics in and of themselves are not evil. I don't think the law of gravity is evil. I think it's part of the way that God has just set up the world. When it comes to death, I think that death, it's interesting that when Adam and Eve die, it's because they no longer have access to the tree of life. Um, But that's that's a point of that we could talk about. So when we're talking about the question of are disabilities the result of the fall, I think sometimes people just get a little bit oversimplistic and say, oh, of course they are. My answer to that is, well, it depends. It depends on what we're talking about. So let's go back to that slide for a minute. 
some things are physics plus moral evil. So for example, let's say um, I endure a natural disaster. Let's say I live in a third world country and there's a horrible um, earthquake, but my government is very corrupt and they don't have good building code enforcement and all the buildings fall down and fall on top of people and people die. Is that natural evil? Is that the earthquake's fault? Or is that some combination of physics through the earthquake and the corrupt human governments uh, where we pay off building inspectors or we just don't have a lot of regulations to protect people? So um, sometimes in corrupt governments, uh, they don't... uh, have proper funding for medicines or they steal money that come from first world countries into third world countries and they don't use the money for the reasons that it's intended. And so then people don't get proper medical care. Is that natural evil or is that moral evil? So just trying to help us have a little bit more of a thoughtful, um, thoughtful engagement about this issue. Now, some disabilities, I think, are the result of moral evil. Some are probably the result of accidents. Some are probably resulting from mutations or physics. And some things could be a combination of both. Um, And so when we think about these things, the question is, I'm just trying to put some things out there to help you think it through a little bit more and not just be overly simplistic and saying that all disabilities are a result of the fall. All right. So going back to our diagram here for a minute of our four major movements of, of scripture. So we talked about in creation, all humans are created in the image of God, but in the fall, something happens. Now all of us get corrupted by sin in the fall But the question of whether or not all disabilities are caused by the fall is a more complicated question. Now, let's look at redemption. When we think about redemption of being redeemed from our sins, God creating a new people through his his death, um, that becomes an interesting situation because now we're thinking about God's new people and that we have different values. We have a different value system than the world. And so we want to think circumspectly about what does God expect his people to, to live out? How does he expect us to engage with those who are disabled, uh, those who are vulnerable, those who may not have a voice? I like, uh, I, I found this passage interesting from the gospel of Luke. It says, when you give a banquet, and this is from Jesus's parable, where he invites, uh, a, a, a rich man invites a bunch of people to a banquet, but they're all too busy to come. So then he tells the workers, go out in the highways and byways and um, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What's interesting to me about this parable is that um, Jesus invites 
people that you might not think to invite into the kingdom. What I like to say is that the kingdom of God is a party and everyone's invited. Everyone's invited. Even the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the people that you might not think to invite to a party are all invited. Now, not everyone says yes to this invitation. Not everybody says yes to Jesus. Not everybody trusts him as their savior. But what's interesting about Jesus's invitation is he doesn't just invite the beautiful people, the rich people, his party. It's like he's having a big bash and he's inviting everybody. But again, not everybody comes. Not every poor person comes. Not every poor person places their faith, hope and confidence in Jesus Christ. But what I love about Jesus's invitation, it is widely inclusive in the invitation. Now, not all come because there's a stipulation in order to get into the door. You have to put your faith in Christ. But I think that it's interesting that people who are who are disabled have that invitation too. They're not second class citizens. They're not um any less important than the people who are able-bodied. Jesus's invitation is to all. Uh, that thought continues in First Corinthians, uh, the the section about uh, the body of Christ. Paul says this: the eye cannot say to the hand, "I don't need you," and the head cannot say to the feet, "I don't need you." On the contrary, those parts of the body. Now notice this that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. So this, this mighty, and he goes on to say the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. In other words, your private parts, you cover them. So we, all parts of the body are important, but we don't treat all parts of the body the same. Sometimes we treat the weaker, they, they are still indispensable, but we treat them actually with special honor and special modesty. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. God's vision for his body, his local church body and the wider church universal body is that we see each other and we see each other through his eyes. And we know that's my brother. That's my sister. If they're in Christ, we're family. And so when I'm sitting in my local church and there's a disabled person in my church, uh, if there's a family with a disabled child, that's my brother. That's my sister. How can I love them? How can I honor them? How can I help protect them and give them special honor because they are more vulnerable? It says this in James, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and father. And with it, we curse human beings who are made in God's likeness. Even after the fall, we maintain that image of God. And because of that, we don't want to curse one another. 
when we use our tongue as God's people, we want to worship God with our tongue, but we want to also honor one another as human beings, as fellow image bearers. We don't want to be in a dichotomy of, well, I praise God on Sunday, but then I curse and I disregard my fellow human beings during the week. We want to live lives ideally and God helping us, Lord, have mercy on us that we try to live lives that are consistent. So if we're um, living as God's redeemed people, going back to our, our, um, our uh, diagram, if we can remember that for a minute, we, we, we're, we were created in the image of God, uh, but we have fallen into sin but now we are living as God's redeemed community and as God's redeemed people as redeemed community as local churches. We want to take care of the people in the family of God. And so when we think about one another, we want to uh, engage in thinking correctly. And then hopefully that, that spills out into right living. So when we think about the image of God, that results in proper treatment of the developmentally disabled and all disabled. Um, and is, this is necessitated by the doctrine of the image of God in all humans. And again, I'm going to draw your attention back to the issue of intrinsic dignity versus functional dignity. Christians don't value people based on what they can do, based on how, if, whether or not they are functional, based on their brain function or their ability to perform tasks. Rather, we believe in intrinsic dignity for the disabled. I think that one of the points that we ought to reflect on in the Christian worldview is the idea of reciprocity in the body. When it talks about in 1 Corinthians that, uh, you know, the, that vulnerability um is for everyone that when one is in trouble, all of us are in trouble. So the developmentally disabled, all disabled, they need us, but we also need them. And this is an important thing for us to reflect on is what is it about them that teaches us? It's not just a one way street of us helping them. Yes, that's a part of it. But then there is the reciprocity of what does that um, do for us? And that is something that we will talk in more detail about in part two of this teaching next week. Uh, the fourth movement in our understanding of scripture is glorification. So first we had creation. We're all created in the image of God. Then we have the fall that uh, we have all have fallen and we're, we're sinful, but the question of whether or not um, disabilities are all caused by the fall is, a, is an important conversation to kind of tease that out a little bit more. Redemption, God is creating a new people and he wants us to live in a, a different way than the world. And he has a vision of one body and one new people that we live among the world, but we live differently than the world with different value systems. And finally, the, the aspect of glorification. So glorification is 
what we look forward to in the book of Revelation. It describes it this way. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and they will be there and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This is what we look forward to. This is the grand vision of the eternal state where our bodies will be renewed and that we will, there will no longer be uh, death or mourning or crying or pain that we will have glorified bodies. So when we look ahead, I, I often wonder, you know, um, whatever brokenness was there in our physical state, um, how will that be repaired in the glorified state? What will that look like? That's an interesting kind of thought experiment to think about. All right, I'm going to go to the comments here before we get into the next movement of the teaching. Uh, Michael. Oh, Pastor Michael. Hello. You may have heard of uh, Meshibbeth. No, I didn't. That's a good one. But that story always breaks my heart and encourages me to be like David, who took him in because of his promise to Saul's household. What a wonderful story. I wish I had thought of that. Thank you, Pastor Michael. I'm glad you weighed in. That's a great, um, a great example to us of what to do and, and how to respond. Okay. My daughter Kylie and her twin sister were born at 26 weeks. She experienced brain bleeds. Oh, causing developmental disabilities and other lifelong complex medical needs. She knew her savior and had hope in his finished work on the cross. I'm so thankful she attended church community groups. who was baptized expressing her public profession of faith and her new life in Christ. She had limited vocabulary, but I will never forget the day she said, Jesus makes me strong. Oh, that's wonderful. She had over 60 surgeries in her life. 21 brain surgeries in 2019. Wow. That's crazy. I can't imagine what your family has gone through. A few months ago, Kylie stated no more surgeries. Home is better. I go to heaven. Oh, she, are you going to make me cry? Monique always says I'm a crier. She loved worshiping with other believers, rolling in the, in rolling into church using her power chair. That's awesome. November 23rd, 2020, my Kylie met her savior. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Who was that? Who was that? Vera. Thank you, Vera. What a beautiful story. What an honor to have you share that with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. She was 19. Oh, um, Leanne Ford, the utilitarian view of human value can creep into the worldview so subtly. Christian worldview. So, so that yes, it can. We're going to talk about different concepts of personhood in just a minute here. We've probably all heard a pro-life advocate at some point say, you don't know if you're killing the next Einstein or doctor who cures cancer, but that is putting value and dignity in what a person does. Uh Oh, um, not their intrinsic value that matters no matter what they do. Leanne, that, is a very insightful comment. Very good. Thank you for adding that to the conversation. Amber says, yes, my son has never spoken. I wonder if that will be redeemed in heaven. 
I hope so, Amber. I hope you get to hear your son's voice someday. Whatever it is, I know the Lord will be gracious to you in that. Danielle says, four of my dad's siblings have developmental disabilities. Wow. What a lot your grandmother must have gone through. Yes. We lost my Aunt Annabelle and Aunt Carolyn to COVID. Oh, in group homes. Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss, Danielle. Oh, that's that's very sad. Okay. Oh, you guys, you're making me cry. Wait till next week. Wait till next week's show. <laughs> oh, I already recorded it. All right, here we go. All right, so in talking about all of this and our comment earlier about uh, the, the concept of persons is very important because what we have to know is that not all worldviews see personhood the same way that we do. And we can't um, just assume that everyone in our culture shares our belief that humans have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. Now, I'm going to start with an extreme example just for the sake of illustration and then move to uh, kind of where our, our culture seems to be going. So uh, one concept of personhood would be the Nazi approach. And this is personhood was about building the master race, eliminating those unworthy of life. And those unworthy of life uh, could have been Jews, but it also included the mentally diminished physically handicapped and mentally ill. And they were targeted for euthanasia programs and euthanasia is, is death. It it is intentional death. Now a functionalist approach is another approach. And this is put forward by an Australian ethicist named uh, Peter Singer, I believe is his name. And here the foundational idea of personhood is that you have neocortical function, that you have the capacity to do certain tasks, to think, feel, remember, anticipate. So when you have these foundational tasks, then you would be considered a human person. And this is similar ideas are often put forward in the conversation about pro-choice ethics is, well, it's not a true human person if it's not able to perform certain tasks, uh, a heartbeat is not enough to, to, to show personhood. Rather, there needs to have certain brain functioning. Um, and obviously, this definition of personhood would exclude human embryos and infants, um, per- patients who are in a persistent vegetative state. And it could, and we're seeing this, there's been a few cases of trying to confer rights to some higher mammals because they have the functions that are necessary in this definition. So this is a very particular school of thought um, that I think is growing in popularity, but you may not have heard of it. Um, Now there's another approach to personhood called essentialist and essentialist is uh, this definition defines a thing according to its essence, not according to its behavior. So it's different than the functionalist approach. And this is um, more like what the commenter was just saying. This is anchored in the person's potential as a rational, volitional, spiritual, and personal being. So it's more about the potential, the future Einstein, 
the future doctor who could cure cancer. Um, this is this is saying the value of the person is in their potential to be a, a person, a person with potential, not necessarily a potential person. That's a different issue. So the Judeo-Christian view of personhood, again, says personhood has intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. It's not based on functionality. So when we see things like this, these are just two swipes from a few years ago on Instagram that I did a couple screen caps from Tim Tebow's foundation. Uh, he holds these proms every year uh, and is called the night to shine. And I thought it was interesting that they said uh, this, this, I circled these words here, truly incredible. And the question is, is why, why is it noble or virtuous to have a prom for developmentally disabled people? Why does that matter? Why is that more virtuous than aborting children that are developmentally disabled that you find out through genetic testing, we're not going to have a Down syndrome child? Why is this virtuous? Now, I can tell you why I think it's virtuous, because these are human persons. These are, these are people created in God's image, and they have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. But depending on your definition of personhood, this might not be virtuous. This might not be incredible. This might be kind of strange. This might be a drain on society. This might be a drain on resources. Here's another screen cap I did from a few years ago. Um, every life has value. Every life matters, regardless of the amount of chromosomes you have. Well, again, my question is why? Why does every life matter? It all depends on how you define what it means to be a human person and where you get the idea of dignity. Does that come from a person's function? Does that come from what they are able to do? Does it come from their potential to um, find the cure for cancer? Or does it come from their intrinsic value, dignity, and worth simply because they are image bearers created uh, with intrinsic value, dignity, and worth? I'm going to go to the comments one more time, just see if there's anything there. All right. I'm a PT. I think that's a physical therapist. Uh, and I work with pediatrics. I have gained so much from my interactions with my patients and families. Thank you for sharing that, Chantal. Chantal. It may be sweet in a Scandinavian country has zero infidence, incidence of Down syndrome because they abort all those precious babies. Okay. So I'm glad you brought this up about that. So I did some research on that. It's actually ice, Iceland. Yeah. So it, it's, it, it's complicated. It's not, they have a zero rate, but they do have a high rate of abortions and they have, a, I think it's in single digits of the amount of children that are born with Down syndrome, uh, single digits percentage wise. So there, I think that there is some cultural pressure. Um, it's, I've read conflicting reports as to, uh, how much pressure and whether it's been overstated in the media. 
So I didn't, I purposefully didn't bring up that example because I couldn't confirm um, some of the facts around that as I've heard that I'm going to call it an internet rumor. Um, but if anyone has like peer reviewed facts on that, like published in a journal, um, like a peer reviewed journal, I'd, I'd welcome that. Uh, but I purposefully didn't use that example because I, I read conflicting reports and I couldn't confirm everything. So I didn't want to have that as a lead. All right, let's go back to the comments. What about people who are unable to cognitively able to accept Jesus's invitation? I think that's a great question, Abby. We're going to talk a little bit about that in part two of this live stream uh, next week. Uh, we already had one story here of uh, a mom and her daughter. Um, I think that my personal view is that uh, because I do tend to lean toward more of an Anglican reformed um, tradition and uh, looking at things more covenantally. Um, I think that, you know, there's a case to be made of being in a, born in a Christian family and having Christian parents and that there's a sense of um, God kind of meets us where we are. And I just have to think like, I don't maybe know the whole story. I don't know everything that's happening in that person's mind. I don't know how God's communicating with them. I don't know what's going on up there. And so I want to allow God the room to work with that person. And whatever that outcome is, I know I can trust God to be wonderfully gracious and perfectly just. So that's my answer to that. All right. So I'm going to wrap up tonight with a little video. It's from the Sierra Salem Christian Home. I have no idea who they are, but they have a lovely video on their website explaining their mission and vision. And it's just the perfect, I think, um, example, another example of some Christians who have decided to live out their worldview in a tangible way. And so when we're talking about justice issues, I want to caution you against only focusing on big macro system conversations and focus on what could my group, my local church, could we get together with some other local churches in the area? What could we do to meet the needs of the developmentally disabled in our community because they are image bearers? And I'm going to leave you with this video from the Sierra Salem Christian Home. One in six children in the United States have a developmental or intellectual disability. Most of the time, these children live at home with their families and have access to services and support. But when they become adults, what are their options? An additional concern is that as children with Down syndrome age, many begin to develop Alzheimer's or dementia around age 40. By the time they are 60 years old, almost 100% of them experience some form of dementia and need memory care as well as everyday care. With aging parents and a desire to live independent lives, where do they go? Where will they live? Who will help? There is a place of hope and help for families and the ones they love. Sierra Salem Christian Homes is a safe, secure, and loving community that sees all people, especially the oftentimes forgotten developmentally disabled adult, as image bearers of God. Our highly trained and caring staff members celebrate each one of our residents and strive to see them develop socially, emotionally, physically, 
intellectually and spiritually within a compassionate, attentive, and Christian environment. Sierra Salem Christian Homes offers several spacious, comfortable homes in quiet residential neighborhoods to adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities for the entirety of their adult lives, starting at age 18. We welcome them and invite them to think of Sierra Salem as their permanent home and extended family. As they become older adults, we want them to know that they will be loved, cared for, and will always be a part of the Sierra Salem Christian Homes family, even as they age and move into their elderly years. Sierra Salem Christian Homes began as a need shared by several families who wanted to create a lifelong home for their own adult children who were living with a disability. These families came together and created a place that reflected their values and desire to see their children safe, loved, and cared for, while allowing these adult children the opportunity to live independently from their parents. The families, the board, and the entire staff of Sierra Salem Christian Homes have one singular goal, to extend Christ's love to precious adults by providing a home where they can be safe, share their unique personalities, gain greater independence, receive training and ongoing skills, have fun, enjoy life, and live together as a family within the Sierra Salem Christian Homes community. All right. I hope that this teaching has been helpful to you. This is kind of the first part again. Next week, we're going to be talking to a couple who is very important in my life and is really the ones who have uh, taught me most of what I've taught in this teaching tonight. And that is my aunt and uncle, uh, Pat and Verge Lee. And I'm going to play an interview that I did with them a few days ago about their journey as the parents of a developmentally disabled child. I think you're going to be really blessed by it. Their practical wisdom and their deep Christian commitment and how that has helped to shape uh, how they have lived that out and how they have loved their daughter well. So I hope you'll join me next Tuesday for that broadcast as a follow-up to this conversation. I want to say thank you for joining me tonight, and I hope you have a good week. God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.